Welcome to a very special Christmas episode of Perfect Nighting. I'm your host Neil Perryman and today's guest is the brilliant and wonderful Paul Mars. Now we'd probably be here till next Christmas if we listed everything Paul has written over the years, but he did ask me to mention his book The Christmas Box, which is published by Obverse Books, because it would make the perfect accompaniment to this podcast. So, without any further ado, let's go ahead and meet him. Hello, Paul. Hello, Neil. First of all, let me say thank you very much for agreeing to share your perfect Christmas night in with us. I'm really glad to be here and I'm feeling really, really Christmassy. It's seven o'clock, it's snowing outside, we're sitting here under the mistletoe. There's only one thing missing. Put something on the telly. My first choice is obviously the Box of Delights, which is the, for me, the best ever kids show, best ever adaptation of a kids classic and it arrived for me on TV when I was I guess 14 so I was at the end of watching a whole lifetime of children's TV and I should have been growing up and growing out of stuff like that and growing out of Doctor Who but it was part of that whole world because of the presence of Patrick Troughton as this amazing magical Punch and Judy man in this story about snow and wolves and magic boxes and Hearn the Hunter and all these kind of fabulous mythological things. It's like a kind of 1930s mashup of um, all my favourite stuff, except I didn't know it. That was my favourite stuff till I watched it then. And it's become a huge kind of part of my life since. I guess since the DVD came out and I could, you know, 20 years later and, and then you know, set about watching it every Christmas since and doing the classic thing of watching an episode a week leading up. I've just rewatched episode two, and there's a bit where the kids are tramping through really thick snow very early in the morning with pocketfuls of stuff they've nicked from the larder. And so there's two little lads running through the the, the woods and the snow, eating sausage rolls, <laughs> having about to have an adventure, and watching Doctor Who being scrubbled by um, clergymen in the snow. And I just thought that there's nothing better than that, and that's become the model for a good time. We scrubbled the old man. <laughs> I'm sure it was old Mr. Hollings. Oh, Punch and Judy men. Certainly look jolly like him. But who are they? And what would they want him for? I still love it, and I love all the performances in all six of these episodes. Every episode has some starry moment. Yeah, it's just, it's great. So you rewatch The Box of Delights every single year? Sometimes I, I, I sneak in a bit of a summer watch as well. There are other ones. There are you know, the things I love The Secret Garden when they did that. That's a very summery one. I love Tom's Midnight Garden. I love the books that they're based on. But for some reason, there's magic distilled in this particular adaptation. I don't know what it is. Mr. Hollings! I think it was one of those ones where there's a lot of people coming together and doing their best work just at that moment. So it's incredibly dense and rich. And, you know, people laugh at special effects and so on, but these were state-of-the-art things at the time. They were using a blend of puppetry and masks, cartoons and, and fledgling CGI, I guess, whatever it is. But it was a lovely mix, but also using the best of what the BBC had always done, going right back, you know, costume drama, and people talking in, in, in ridiculously camp voices all that kind of drama i love with those kind of special effects which might you know look a bit shonky whatever 30 odd years later but who cares they want my box of delights that i showed you at the inn i've not had it long 
It is Master Arnold's box, not mine. And though I've sought him and called him, I've not found him. Gone a long way back as Master Arnold. But doesn't... Excuse me, but doesn't the box protect you from the wolves? Oh, they run me close with that new magic, which I can't guard myself against. Not anymore. Because I'm old now and only know the old magic. No, Master Kay. I look to you. Will you keep it and see that they never get it? And the music's great as well. The music's fabulous. And perfect blend of something that's essentially classic with the twinkly twonk of um, the radiophonic fellas. So the Box of Delights gets you in the mood for Christmas? Yep, couldn't be better. Okay, so it's 7.30, what's your next choice? next choice is Crossroads. And why on earth have you chosen Crossroads? Because it's about sitting with a, a tea tray and, and beans on toast. And Crossroads exists in a space in my head that's always cosy, like the rooms of Coronation Street. And it's something to do with, with studio-based drama and, and, and all you know, these rooms looking the same. And they've, they've carved out a space in your head. And they will always, so, so Meg's sitting room, the olive-coloured walls and, and the peculiar-shaped windows... Um, and where the furniture is, that's a space in my head that's always going to be a place I can go back to, like the TARDIS console. I'm sick of talking about Doctor Who, I'm sorry. <laughs> and that's always there. And this particular episode, which is Christmas Eve 1979, I believe, so it's right at the end of the 70s, with the cast that was, I guess, lots of them run their way out. They all assemble for a party in Meg's sitting room. Um, she has a few nibbles out. There's kind of miniature sausage rolls in evidence. And, um, and all the characters' threads tend towards this, this, this party, at which there happens to be a jazz combo in the corner, and she, she, she suddenly goes into a song from Auntie Mame, and that's how the episode finishes, and it's just outrageous that she does this number looking like a kind of clown, really. I mean, she's an outrageous camp artist. Oh, come on now, Meg. How about a song from you? Oh, yes, wow. yes, come on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Come on, Fred, 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 Fred. Fred. Yes, All right, John. Clearly. Bring out the holly. Light up the tree before my spirit falls again. Fill up the stocking. We may be rushing things. But deck the halls again now. Every second through the episode, all the twining threads, the, the peculiar girl and her, her a terrifying bearded father who wants to um, keep her indoors and not let her go with Leonard to the, um, the hospital Christmas party. That's a whole subplot. <laughs> and when you watch episodes like this out of context, you're like, who are these bizarre people? What, what on earth was that weird psychodrama? But when you watch it as a kind of Christmas ritual, it gets funnier. Ooh, Leonard, I had a lovely time at the hospital party. All those things. And then, you know, Stephen Thorne, who was Omega and as our, I'm sorry, in Doctor Who, comes on as a weird chauffeur having a row with his miserable wife in the foyer of the Crossroads Motel. And their dialogue in this scene, which I hope you'll pick out as a clip, is astonishingly bad and horrible and badly learned. And, and I don't know what they're talking about. Clearly code for something sexy, but I've no idea what's going on. Well, there have been mistakes, I grant you. Too many, perhaps, but 
In the end, on balance, I'd say I was in credit. Self-sufficiency. What? Always been your strong point. Well, I hope it'll see you through, because I haven't felt I could do this. Not until now. I don't know, perhaps I'm seeing things in a different light. Anyway, I can do it now. I'm sorry, you've lost me again. Do what? Um, when I saw Stephen Thorne at um, a Doctor Who convention, he held open the door in this kind of grand way and said, you know, come through. I was dying to say your best thing ever was that scene at Christmas. And he would have no memory, would he, of that? So I never did. But this whole episode, you know, Rosemary's there, who's married to David Hunter, who was, she was later to shoot him on a shag pile carpet in, in February, and he leaked pink blood onto the, uh, the fake lamb's wool. You just think, you watch them singing, We Need a Little Christmas, with a mince pie in one hand, and there she is, and you can see her eyes are crazy. She's, you know, she's thinking, I'm going to shoot that bastard before bloody Easter. Um, oh, it's a wonderful show. Well, so far, all I've got are more questions, so I'm leaving. For Switzerland? It is my home. And there's no reason for me to stay on here now, is there? Well, you said you wanted to spend more time together. Private time, you said. You always seem so preoccupied with your work. I'll make time. I don't want to put extra pressure on you. I thought it was a good idea when you suggested it, and I still think it's a good idea. If you want me to stay, David, I will. I mean, what I heard was that they over-rehearsed, that there was two versions. There was the short version, if they were running short of time, so it's like, come on, come on, come on, <laughs> you could see someone. And, and cut to the one with the fewer lines in, or the longer version, which if it was... Um, so you can see them swerving between grooves, like, is it the fast one, is it the short? And I think sometimes they're on different pages, which just adds to it, I love it. I can't stand the glossiness of contemporary soap and watching things like Hollyoaks, which seems to me the closest we have to it, but you've got these weird people who wear new clothes everywhere they go, and everyone looks more or less the same. They're spray-painted with pate, and every episode's with one bloke going, oh, no, I've kissed a man, every single episode. No. Crossroads had such variety. Okay, Crossroads takes up to eight o'clock, and your next choice, Paul, isn't Christmassy at all. A real treasure now on BBC Two. We're off to Blackpool for a shampoo and set, and that's something special provided by three salons at the seaside. My third choice might not seem Christmassy on the surface, but it's loads of old ladies, and I just think old ladies are Christmassy. You know, if I think about Christmas, I just think old ladies, and especially old ladies at the seaside having their hair done. I have my eyebrows done. I have my manicure and my pedicure. What's pedicure? It's a documentary that has nothing to do with Christmas that I just adore. It's my favourite piece of TV ever, and it's called Three Salons at the Seaside. It was on... The BBC in about 1994, and it's an absolute gem. I think it's been repeated once. I taped it on VHS, um, living in a student house, and kept the tape, and then transferred it to disc when we got a disc machine, or whatever it is, in 2006, and I've just treasured it, and make everybody watch this. And it's essentially a filmmaker, whose name I forget, which is terrible, we can find out and, and add that. It's Philippa Lothorpe. She obviously spends days and days and days in three salons in Blackpool and just films the old ladies behaving and chatting, maundering on, gossiping, digging over past grievances and telling terrible stories and giggling. And it's just bliss. It's got the most wonderful soundtrack. And while these ladies sit there, really still in the dryers, there's a girl 
going past on, on roller skates really fast outside and you see her intercut with it. So it's, it's, a, it's a brilliant meditation on death, mostly. Oh, it was terrible. The lady from the laundrette came in to verify this story. Oh. Was it our Betty that had died? And we said, well, it couldn't possibly be. I'd spoken to her on the phone and Greta had seen her. And it turned out it was um, Betty Edwards who used to live on Abbotsford, yeah, and who yeah, then moved yeah, up yeah. to Fairfax, where Betty lives, mm -hmm. and only lived a few doors away, but oh, what a rumour. The young woman, who, younger, she's 50-odd, with rock-hard white meringue hair and big dark glasses, pulls out the funeral bag at one point. She says, oh, I've set this aside for the ladies going to, the, going to funerals, because we have a lot. And she said, um, I put some mints in and a bit of money and a hanky. And she said, this bag's been to so many funerals. And she's got a ledger with everybody whose hair she's done who's dead. And she said, in case there's any confusion, because rows do break out. <laughs> I do keep a record, actually, of when clients have died, because we're always getting discrepancies in the shop. Um, on, oh, when did Mrs. Such-a-Body die? So rather than we'd say the wrong date and upset anybody. I usually pull out my little paper that starts in 1980 and goes through, as I say, up to present day, and we can always make sure that we've got the right, the right time and the right day, more or less, because tales do get exaggerated in a hairdresser's, and I do like to keep my, my clients sort of on the straight and narrow if I can. Um, so this is my list that I keep. She's like the, the figure at the gates of hell. You know, it's like she's dispatching them. And we just watch old ladies having their hair washed and talking about, you know, the ones who aren't there. And when they come in, they're greeted, you know, because obviously they were coming every week to have their, their shampoos and set. Hello, Mrs. Buckham. Well, there's Mrs. Buckham. All that stuff. It's just, I love it. It's like listening for me to, to me Nana and her friends and the kind of absolute nonsense I grew up listening to that I just loved, sitting under the the kitchen table as the aunties talked, because of course the men didn't talk, I and mean, this is pure northern working class stuff. The fellas sit through, not talking to each other, they sit in the other room watching football or darts or something, and the women just pull the world and everybody else to bits in the kitchen, or the hairdressers. Yeah, no, it's riven with, with all kinds of, um, oh, just kind of your everyday tragedy and, and, and courage. Because Mrs Duckworth's just become a widow for three months, and you understand how, what people are thinking and that, you know. It's a terrible thing to become a widow, even if you've got... I've got children, I've got grandchildren, but you're on your own. You're on your own. It's a terrible thing. And so Hilary needs me. I think she does. And when she comes to sack me, well, then, I become redundant. I'll just... Uh, I'll move on to something else at church, you see, because I work at church as well. So I think it's a stunning piece of TV, and I just wish we had more. I'm sick of of reality shows in which people are paid ponies and arseholes and, and trot around showing off. This is about, you know, it's proper life. And I, we've, lost, we've lost that sense of, you know, that's what reality TV, when you go back to documentaries like, um, is it Paul Watkins, who made The Family oh, right. in the 70s, that kind of, that level of stuff. It's, it's rare that we get that. I think Big Brother's always been a wonderful TV show because we, we get moments like Three Salons at the Seaside in Big Brother, but nobody kind of dwells on those moments, they dwell on the other stuff. But now I'm a great believer in just listening to people and then have somebody brilliant edit the thing together into um, a piece of art, which I think, I think this is. So I take it from that, Mrs Lawson, you are definitely not going in a restaurant. No, 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 I'm not ready for that yet. <laughs>
Have you brought any snacks with you? Any Christmas snacks? I would have brought some some snacks because my ideal uh, Christmas snack is it's it's kind of it's now almost fabled. <laughs> it's there was a particular sausage roll <laughs> that Marks and Spencer's did. This is like going out with Nana in Newcastle and and fetching things. I've brung up some sausage rolls, you'd say, <laughs> from from Marxies. and they did these lattice sausage rolls that involved tomato and cheese and they were just incredible and you'd eat them almost cold with a pastry undercooked terrible indigestion the life of reflux beckoned but um you can't get them man so we're not having out i brought them out you brought them (laughs) (laughs) i just i depend on jeremy going out to the shop and coming back and usually with stuff that he likes which means endless um, crisps and mint imperials. I'll get you a mince pie then. Well, I'm not, you know, we're not keen on mince pies. Brussels sprouts. I love Brussels sprouts, right. um, but I wouldn't sit sprouts. eating Brussels sprouts. That's ridiculous, now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, while I'm thinking about what to get you to eat, at eight forty-five, your next choice is. My next choice is Larry Grayson's Generation Game. I'd, I'd grown up from being little and, and Bruce Forsyth showing off, really. He would always drub the contestants' face in their own failure. And I can do this better. And off he would go and dance. And you think, I don't care. <laughs> You're being paid, they're not. And, he, you know, the, the lure of a sweet sherry in the BBC bar was all they were getting and a chance to, to look stupid on telly. But when Larry comes in... He spends all his time making himself look terrible at what he's doing. He's so modest and so funny with it. His shtick is that he can't do this and he's not, you know, <laughs> he's not a good talker. And of course he's wonderful. He draws them out and he gets them to to act up in ridiculous ways. And uh, he was very, I remember at the time, um, kind of sitting with family and them saying how awful he was at doing this. But it's a very gentle, very self-deprecating, silly sense of humour and filthy Seems like a nice boy. <laughs> you see, I get a lot of letters, uh, an awful lot of letters sent to me, and I, I answer as many as I can. I mean, all you people that have written into me, you'll, you'll be hearing from me, but for, for worried of Epping Forest, <laughs> if you get a, a bit of beeswax <laughs> and a bit of liniment on the end of a loofah, I'm sure you'll find it'll work. And, uh... The episode I've picked is, is New Year. 1979 and he had this running shtick where there was a door sliding door and a guest would come out and it would surprise him who's around the back when it gets to uh, new year 1979 they're going to look back on the whole of the year and pick out the best clips and we go through the door into larry's special parlor with larry and isla the um scottish songstress who um stood by the scoreboard and and helped him along and reminded him of the script usually. So they sit in his parlour, which is, you know, there's a, a plush velour settee and um, a Christmas tree bedecked in, in you know, Woolworths decorations. And they sit there with a box of chocolates and a roaring fire and loads of Christmas cards. And essentially it's Larry's TARDIS, which, you know, I was keen on seeing. I assume that's what it was. So here we are. Yeah. Do you like it? Yeah, isn't it lovely? This is This is the room... The room. Chocolates. I know. I no, must have one. No expense has been spared. <laughs> well, here we are, about to shut that door on the uh, the 1970s. 
Mm. And it's New Year's Eve, so we thought we'd take the opportunity of looking back at some of the old acquaintances we made on the Generation Game over the past year. And they look at clips and they just piss themselves. They watch, you know, the telly that we had, a wooden-sided telly with a slightly blue picture, and um, laugh at clips of themselves helplessly, because it, I mean, it is bloody funny. You see, Ali, you said father, father and daughter, and it was mother I and did, son. Right? Did I? Yeah. Now look at it again. <laughs> our first contestants are here tonight to play our generation game. From Kent and Avon, father and daughter, Pat and Andy Thompson. It was, it. it was mother and son. I didn't know I'd done it. I, no. I didn't. I I was, now they've got all the neighbours talking, haven't they? It's the, the level of just silly unprofessionalism of it. And, and the clips are delightful. And, and they talk about this being the end of the 70s. And by the end, when they raise a, a, a toast, it's, you know, oh, we wonder what the 80s hold. And you think, you poor bastards. <laughs> this show's going for a start. Well, we've certainly had a lot of fun this year, and it's almost time to put away the memories and start preparing for the 1980s. Anyway, I see that the Orient Express is about to pull into the studio with my, uh, with my very good friend, Hercules... For, well, what, that's it. I, I'm not very good at names at all, you know. Well, I don't care. I mean, for me, the end of the 70s was the end of, of lots of things and, and changes in, in my family, and, yeah, and looking back, it's a great kind of hinge in everything at that point and and to watch Larry and Isla sat in his back parlour wondering and giggling and uh, drinking sherry and looking a bit tipsy to be honest is um is sweet it's a very sweet episode and but you can dip into any episode of and and, and very few of them are around you just certainly don't get dvd box sets of, of Larry Grayson's generation game and I wish you did to watch people making complete tits of themselves it's just just heaven lastly you are Janet Hinchcliffe. No. What? Hinchcliffe. Oh, Hinchcliffe. Oh, oh, I see. It's the uh, C before the L. Hinchcliffe. No. Hinchcliffe. There's no second C. There's what? There's no second C. It's Hinchcliffe. <laughs> <laughs> That's wrong. Is that wrong? That's wrong. Could I speak to the girl that typed this out? <laughs> Again, it's, it's that thing of people weren't very professional at being themselves in the past. They'd just turn up, and it's like playing parlour games at home, and here's so-and-so's popped around, and, 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 and I don't know, it, oh, I sound like such an old fart. But now people are so good at being themselves on TV and give such a good account of themselves. You think, oh, it's just stop being so, I don't know, so practised at being you. You know, I want to see the rough edges. That's the, the essence of TV, really. It's, it's putting a lens on the kind of... The hopelessness <laughs> that we all demonstrate in being us in public, the embarrassment of being ourselves on show. You know something? One of these days we're going to rehearse this show. <laughs> we promise we will rehearse it next year. I'm glad to say there's one grape left for yes, me. Yes, <laughs> there is just one grape left. The chocolates have gone, the cake's gone, and the fruit's gone. The fruit was made of wax. <laughs> anyway, we hope you enjoyed the series. We both most you certainly did. have. And we look forward to being back next, uh, next year. And we'd like to wish you a very happy new year. A good new year to Ian and all. And that goes for me too. Tra, we both love you very much. Take Bye. care. Bye. Shut that door. We just made the generation. Okay, your next choice at 9.45 is very Christmassy indeed.
The Muppet Family Christmas Special from 1987, not something I think that got shown over here, so I saw it many years later, and of course, 87's a big important year in the world, the world of the Muppets, because while Henson's doing this Christmas special, he's also done The Storyteller with John Hurt, which is one of the best TV shows, I think, ever, with a retelling of um, European fairy tales through puppets and amazing performances, um, and Labyrinth, which is you know one of the best things ever. But you have this Christmas special in which all the puppets get together and sing songs and converge on Fozzie's mother's house. When she thinks she's off to Bermuda, she's actually going to play host to a million um, crazy puppets. This is the best idea we've had in years. Christmas at my mother's farm. Sounds great, Fozzie, but don't you think we should have called your mother to let her know we were coming? Oh, how little you understand bears, Kermit. My mother loves surprises. Good thing she's in for beauty. And essentially, it's a, you know it's, it's it's the best thing the Muppets ever did. I think it's hilarious. Everyone reverts to type. Everyone sings a song. Um, they find Fraggle Rock in the basement, and they get a song. Wow. All the characters from Sesame Street turn up to to sing outside the house, and that's quite a teary moment. For some reason, this convergence of characters from different shows who are all made out of fun fur fabric is incredibly moving. Um, and I still find it like that. And it is, you know, it's the, it's, it's the cliches about families getting together at Christmas and they play them out completely. Um, I've always had that kind of hankering for stories that are about team-ups. And I think I've been cured by the Marvel Universe films, I must say. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, I've gone off that now. This is the Muppet version of the extended universe. Of the, completely, they were uh, always there first, yeah. I think. And um, it's, yeah, Miss Piggy trying to get there and being blown back by the elements all the time. There's some wonderful jokes. All right, the huge canary sleeps in the attic with the cookie eater. Check. The blue monster said he'd sleep in the bathtub. Check. And uh, Ernie and Bird will bunk out with a lizard here. Uh, uh, Frog, uh, Kermit the Frog. Uh, what about Oscar? No, I'll be nicely miserable with my trash can here. <sighs> hey, maybe I could bunk out here with you. Ah, I never had a rat in my trash can before. That might be nice. <laughs> hey, everybody, look what I've got. Christmas cookies. Cookies. Oh, thank you. Who was that strange blue creature? That my kind of fella. It begins with the very song, that The Crossroads, that we just watched ended with so um there's a touch of mame running through this and mame as in you know not break your legs mame as in anti-mame <laughs> yeah that's that that wouldn't be christmasy and um, what's your favorite part of this episode not the muppet babies bit that's the only bum now i can't bear the muppet babies whoever had that idea now the my favorite thing is right at the end where everybody's singing you have an extended medley of carols and then the camera pans to the kitchen where you see a bloke with a beard doing all the washing up, and the dog's helping him. The dog from Fraggle Rock is, is helping him. And you realise it's Jim Henson, and he's explaining to the dog that he's happy when all the Muppets are happy, and um, carries on with the washing up, and it's because somebody has to at Christmas. And then it's finished, and, and you realise, of course, he didn't have much longer left to live. And I think it's, I'm not sure, but I think it's the last thing that he, he, um, he did and put his name to, I think. Yeah, fantastic finish to a, to a really wonderful career. Well, he certainly seems to be having a good time out there, Sprocket. Yeah, I like it when they have a good time. But I tell you what, somebody's got to do something about these dishes, Sprocket. Come on, I'll wash and you dry, okay? Good tidings to you wherever you are. We wish you a 
Actually, I don't know. Gonzo's great. Gonzo's always good because he's kind of, um, he's like Woody Allen in Woody Allen movies where he stands slightly tangential to the fiction. Oh, God, what do I sound like? <laughs> he's funny. He's got chickens. He sleeps with chickens. That's hilarious. So do you watch this every year? Is this something that you get out every year? Yeah, I have about 18 hours worth of TV that I have to get through on Christmas Eve. Well, Christmas Eve isn't that long. I have to be dragged off to bed. I've got to get through Cagney and Lacey's Christmas special. There's K9 and Company, which I've not mentioned. All these things take a... Have I mentioned K9 and Company? I, I think know. I left it out because I didn't want to talk about Doctor Who because I know you don't like it. Well, you've not, you've not done a good job so far. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah. You mentioned it once, but I think you got away with it. I didn't. There's an awful lot to get through, and I have to watch it all. It's a kind of, um, yeah, it's a ritual. Otherwise, the, the badder book or whatever. Was, was it called a badder book? Badder duck? No, that's a duck. <laughs> a Candyman will turn up if you don't watch all of Christmas in order. <laughs> OK, it's 10.30, and your next choice isn't K9 and Company. party here and we're going to be unwrapping Christmas. We're going to be showing you Christmas as it really is. Yeah, me. Yay! My 10.30 choice, it's another piece of reality TV. It's, uh, um, I think it was on, actually I think it was Channel 4 and I taped it at the time in 96 and it's a show called The Real Christmas Show presented by Gabby Roslin and she had a show I think called The Real Holiday Programme uh, where they would give people video cameras and they'd make short video diaries about their holidays. And in this case, it's Christmas, and it's the previous Christmas. It's Christmas 95, the year... It's my first year away from home at Christmas, and I was in Edinburgh, and it snowed, and it snowed everywhere in the country. And for this special, there are, I think, seven families, and they've all made video diaries of Christmas 95. They're all in different parts of the country, and they're different kinds of families, and some are dead poor, some are quite well-off, and some are rough as guts, just... Anyway, so, so then, then they're all in the studio in Christmas 96. It's probably July 96, isn't it? And it's like a winter wonderland getting hammered on red wine by the looks of it. And she's in this kind of gold lame um, suit thing. And she's going from table to table talking to these families who um, uh, describe last Christmas. Well, people have died. People have had strokes. People have fallen out, as is the nature of Christmas. And then we watch these video diaries. Well, I've watched this every year since 96. Again, one of these things that I hiked off uh, VHS onto disc and make everybody I know watch because it's just, it's a beautiful piece of social history, really. Jessica is getting on my nerves a bit because, you know, she's a sulk. Jess, so I want you to tell me about why you think you haven't got much presents this year. Shut up. No, I want to know. I'm not telling you. Probably not one of the best Christmases I've had. <laughs> I'm quite happy with the presents. Some of them have been a bit naff. Christmas. I don't wish it was every day, because then it just wouldn't be anything special, would it? But maybe twice a year. That would be good. So the families are ones that I feel as if I've got to know in all that time. There's a quite, you know, loud and raucous family uh, of Scousers. That's the one where the old mothers died. 
since then, and um, and they laugh about it in the studio because it's what she would have wanted. She wouldn't want to be miserable. Uh, and, and a Newcastle family where the women are working uh, at a taxi firm and have to open presents at three in the morning, and you can see they've had a few drinks, and the snow comes down, and 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 she's forgotten to buy the bread, and she's gone around Morrison's and can't get bread, and just things like that. I just love it. It's a whole show about stuff like that. And then you know this 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 very middle class couple younger in Cornwall who have all their friends to stay in their cottage and she's had terrible things wrong with her. She's had a heart and lungs transplant and they know it's going to reject at some point but this is the first Christmas she's felt well for years. So they have all their friends and all the friends jump in the sea on Boxing Day. They make all this food and obviously they have a whale of a time but again it's stricken with this terrible sadness underneath. Last year I was just completely laying down. Jonathan had to do everything. Christmas morning um, I'd been home about 10 days, I suppose, and I had to sit in the kitchen and issue instructions on what to do with the turkeys, what vegetables to do. I was feeling faint and dizzy, and I would have given anything to have come down to the beach for a walk because it is such a pleasure for me. I love it. This is what makes it all worthwhile. And, of course, now it's, what is it, 23 years ago since all these Christmases, and you can't help thinking, what became of everyone? Weirdly, with the, the Scouse family, I did go to... <laughs> Years afterwards, I went to Portugal and I flew out from John Lennon Airport and I'm sat there. I just went by myself. I love travelling places by myself because you are kind of, you know, because you're not talking to anyone, you're listening to everybody else. And there was this loud, raucous, scouse voice from the table of the pub next to me. This woman's talking to a friend. Who, ah. I thought, I know that voice. And I thought, is it someone I know? No, it's a woman off the real Christmas show. And I was dying to go over and say, I'm a big fan of your Christmas 1995 you can't, can you? She'd think, you absolute weirdo. I bet she's forgotten what went on. She's the one where she has, she's cooking for the whole family. You can see she never cooks a meal all year round, and she's knackered because she's having to mash potatoes. And she, and she gets all the timings wrong. And the family starts singing, Why Are We Waiting? And she comes through with a knife, and she says, I'm going to cut the throats of the lot of you. Does anybody want carrot and swede? Yes. Why are we waiting? We're waiting because I haven't got a sharp knife clean yet for you. Where's my I never look forward to Christmas. It seems to be a woman's thing. The fellas don't seem to do anything for Christmas. It's the woman who runs around like a blue-ass fly. And you're absolutely shattered. It can take you a few weeks after Christmas to get your, you know, to get all your energies back. So I can hear this voice going while I'm sat in the airport and I, was, I just couldn't say it to her, because it was her. <laughs> I know your work. <laughs> the idea that these characters are about in the world is it is enough for me um, yeah but no it's one of my absolute favorite bits of telly i know lots of people for your podcast will choose canonical kind of proper telly and, and i should be choosing whistle and i'll come to you you know the mr james's ghost story for christmas that kind of stuff um i'm not i'm choosing completely ephemeral stuff that i've somehow um latched onto and to me they feel eternal but they're probably not well, that's about it for The Real Christmas Show. Just time to say a big thank you to everyone that let us share their Christmas. And love it or hate it, I wish you all a very Merry Christmas. OK, Paul, it's 11.30. I'm going to have a snowball. Can I get you a drink? 11.30, you're asking me if I want a drink. <laughs> um, a snowball sounds good. Jeremy loves a snowball. And um, 20 years ago, when we first got our first house, 
We lay on the settee watching Christmas movies on Christmas Eve, and the living room had a. Um, uh, it opened straight to the street, the front door, and and we passed out on the, on the settee watching It's a Wonderful Life because we didn't think snowballs were that strong, and we couldn't move. And our new friend Stephen over the road was looking through the letterbox at us, and thought we'd die. <laughs> and it was it was ad- advocate inspired coma, coma induced coma, yeah, yeah, <laughs> death by eggnog. That's why I haven't given you any until this point. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I would, it's too frothy. Um, I'd probably have a gin and tonic. That's really tall, isn't it? Yeah, not a baby show. No. <laughs> be Gordon's. Okay, Paul, I'll get you a gin and tonic while we start your final choice. My final choice is a um, a really spooky, dark, grueling horror story. Now, I mean, having said that about M.R. James before, that I haven't chosen one of the great ghost stories for Christmas. Um, I like them, they're okay. Uh, <laughs> I love them. Some of them are stupid, but um, the one with the bin bag coming up the beach after Michael Horden, classic. But ITV decided, oh, they're doing these classy MR James things. Well, we'll do our own version. We'll get Willis Hall, who's a wonderful writer, who's partly responsible for Wurzel Gummidge and lots of other lovely things. The BBC have Michael Horden, really classy, wonderful actors appearing in theirs. We'll get Elaine Stritch. So the boy murdered his own sister right in this very room. On Christmas Eve. Elizabeth was seven, Nicholas was nine. But why? Just for the hell of it, or did he have a reason? So they put Elaine Stretch, star of Broadway, and, and um, so on, into a spooky house where she's meant to be a kind of a film location scout who goes to spend Christmas with these impoverished aristos staying in the corner of an old house that's meant to be haunted for various reasons and it's open to the public but it's closed over Christmas. And you've got um, Stephanie Cole as a kind of Mrs Danvers, very hatchet-faced, evil housekeeper who scares the shit out of Elaine Stritch when she's left alone when the two poshos go and deliver presents to the old lady up the lane. And so essentially we're watching Mrs Danvers haunt Elaine Stritch around this house. So you've got lots of creeping menace, lots of studio-bound drama, lots of ghostly, dark, filmed stuff outside. And then Elaine Stritch running around the house in big, clomping high heels and a terrible tunic dress, shouting, <laughs> Like a, a kind of elderly vulture and drag as she flaps between levels of the, the set and and there are some genuinely scary I mean it's ludicrous and camp and stupid but there's some amazingly scary bits that she gets a cat dropped and <laughs> dropped on her head at one point and I defy you not to yell <laughs> out in shock when that happens even if I've spoiled it just now It's you know got waxwork, child killer dummies coming to life and, and all sorts of stuff. Brilliant. Sounds like Doctor Who. No, it's nothing like it. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Who at the time didn't do anything creepy. Eighty-three. There was nothing spooky about Doctor Who. It looked more like Larry Grayson's Generation game. You know, it was it was it was light entertainment, wasn't it? I love when when um, they do special episodes of sitcoms and they go spooky like this. The, the great serial killer axe murderer episode of Only Fools and Horses, which is one of the best things ever. 2.4 Children did a lonely house on the moors axe 
Murderer Episode 2. <laughs> They've all got to have it. That thing when TV drama can just turn a corner and, and become chilling um, and uncanny. And I guess because it's so homely. And the, the, the flip side of that is that you know, it, it's, it's a scary place. I'm slipping into Halloween territory on and spooky things. But Christmas, you have to have a good, creepy story to finish with, I think. Yeah, and Christmas spirits really is it. And it has the Coventry Carol repeated as a, as a theme throughout, which is one of the most beautiful pieces of um, Christmas music, I think. But my favourite Christmas piece of music is obviously Pinky and Perky's Christmas album from 1969, which was the first record that I owned, which is, it's so nostalgic. Hey, Pinky, do you know what day it is? Of course I do, Perky. Everybody knows it's Christmas Eve. You better watch out, you better not cry, better not pout, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. So this is Paul Marr's idea of a perfect night in. The wolves are running at seven o'clock, but will the box of delights keep them at bay? That's followed by a festive edition of Crossroads. And then we're off to the seaside at eight, more precisely to three salons where some old ladies are getting their hair done. Larry Grayson and Isla St. Clair bring us back into a festive mood at 8.45 in the Generation Game, while a Muppet Family Christmas is unwrapped an hour later. Gabby Roslin's looking at family home movies at half past ten in The Real Christmas Show. And then, a late night chiller starring Elaine Stritch and Stephanie Cole, Christmas Spirits. And if I were you, I'd watch that with a friend. I've got one last question for you, and that is if you could share your perfect night in with anyone living or dead, who would you choose? Oh, that's really hard. Um, oh, everybody who was at our family Christmas party in 1980. It was the one time we had a party around our house, and it was hilarious. It was a big sing-song, and, um, and it was like those episodes of, of soaps where one cast was fading out and the, and the new younger ones were coming in, and it, that, that was all true of that time as well. There's a great episode of Coronation Street where there's a sing-song around somebody's house, and you can see the old guard there with the younger members, and that's what this party was like. Maybe all family parties are like that. I would love to reconvene that party somehow, impossible as it is. And, and make them watch all this TV. Oh, they wouldn't sit for a they wouldn't watch the shit I watch. Are you kidding? See, all the things that I treasure are things that they would absolutely see as ephemeral and useless and wasteful and ridiculous. We don't think that, Paul. But you do. And thank you so much for sharing <laughs> your perfect night in at Christmas. Well, thank you for asking me to talk absolute nonsense. <laughs> Oh no, I've kissed a man. <laughs>